Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from my office in my home. Uh, I'm not in the horrid halls, but I am, because it's just me, it's just Alex. I am wrapping up the uh, summer trilogy, which I kicked off, um, I guess, last month, because now we are into August. And uh, we're, I said, if you guys wanted it, I would do the whole trilogy of I know what you did last summer, I still know what you did last summer, and I'll always know what you did last summer. Um, and you guys wanted this? Uh, so we're gonna do it. We're gonna do it right now. Um, I have the film queued up on my computer. Um, so we'll do a countdown together and you can start. Um, I will say that it will I'd be interested to hear if you have seen this film before, of course, Sylvan White's I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer, um, <laughs> which came back, uh, which came out in like the mid 2000s. Um, I actually have my book in front of me, the 1990s teen horror cycle, and I'm going to refresh my memory about what year it came out. Because I just reread my stuff on it, but uh, did I check the year? I did not. But here we are. I'll always know what you did last summer, 2006. Um, so I have rented this film from Apple. Uh, the filmmakers will be getting my four ninety nine uh, in Canadian money. And uh, right now I'm at the screen and it's up next. It's asking me, do you want to start playing the movie? I'll always know what you did last summer. Uh, you will have 48 hours to watch this movie. So um, it's... I, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking do it. This may take me two days, but uh, no, it won't. I'm kidding. Okay, I've hit play. Um, so go, and it's starting now. So that was less of a countdown and more of a me talking through my mentality. So if you guys can decipher that, uh, great. We are on the uh, destination film screen, um, and if not, just just skip back. Skip back 10 seconds. I do um, encourage you to mute the volume on your TV or laptop or whatever you're watching it on and listen to this audio track uh, rather than have too many competing audio issues. But here we go. Um, so the film, this film is so interesting to me. This is one of the few films, very few films for uh, this book, the 1990s teen horror cycle that I had not seen before. Uh, starting this book, I'd kind of wanted to, uh, I'd meant to watch it and just hadn't. It also didn't get like a huge release. It didn't, you know, I actually had to sit down and go like, okay, I want to go watch this film. I need to go find it. it. Didn't pop up in a streaming service or anything like that. Um, so, uh, oh my God. Uh, oh my God. I hope none of you have epilepsy or are triggered by a lot of flashing hard cuts because that's all this is. Okay, we have a lot to talk about in this film. <laughs> uh, but uh, to finish my point, I think there is probably less of, uh, maybe you're like me and haven't seen this before, so to watch it with an audio commentary may be your best way. Um, but I respect you if you've watched it once all the way through and are now kind of coming back to it with an audio commentary. Because um, that's great. Uh, okay, but so... We are eight years, yeah, eight years since the last film. Uh, I still know what you did last summer that came out. Oh, that guy's creepy fucking face. Uh, in 1998, 
and this is 2006 now, and a lot has changed in the film industry, and I think this opening is incredibly indicative of that. In the time period from 98 to 2006, uh, we saw the 1990s teen horror cycle wrap up, you know, not only with films like I Still Know, but oh my god, this... We're gonna. I'm gonna talk about these characters because holy shit, (laughs) this laughter—it's so weird. Okay, focus. The editing is doing this to me, guys. It's—it's freaking me out. Um, (laughs) God. Uh, So anyway, so you're going from like the faculty, um, uh, Halloween H2O, uh, Screen Three films like that. Um, and that felt really kind of glossy and a bit stayed by the end of its run, even though it was a relatively kind of four-year super popular window um, that these horror films really became codified. Now, when you get into 2000s, we're looking into things, uh, sp- particularly at the beginning of it, we're looking at two kind of major uh, subgenre movements. One is the Americanization of J-horror, and um, I would say for a lot of horror film fans, maybe a discovery or a rediscovery of J-horror or A-horror, Asian horror. Um, Really, really influential um, and very effective films. Some of those uh, films I absolutely love, and we've covered them on the show. Um, Another big thing, which is a subgenre we haven't covered as much on the show, we would both really like to, uh, and that's torture porn. Um... Because torture porn was, again, it's kind of like the 1990s teen horror cycle. It kind of burned bright and hard for a few years. Um, And didn't always get the love that it deserves, but it's so emblematic of that time, a kind of post-9-11 period. Um, I think Andrew and I have just struggled to settle on one of the films to watch. So I don't know if you guys have a uh, strong uh, torture porn film recommendation that you think would be really interesting to talk about you know, drop a line, um, to us, but it's, yeah, there is a bit exhausting to me, but oh my God. Okay. None of these people are in high school or whatever they're supposed to be. This guy working the stand is like 47. Um, and you know, no age shame, but it's just so odd to me when uh, films are so insistent that look at these hip kids and it's, just really I find it very uncomfortable to watch them um ew don't crash at his place you can do better Uh, so yeah, so we were in a small town, uh, we saw the, um, ski gondolas earlier, so we are, uh, not really in a coastal town, um, the setting of the first film, um, or a resort as in the second, but we are in kind of, I, I would, I read this more as like a middle America kind of vibe. Yeah, I have the same feeling, Brunette. Uh, Well, just 
So this film has a lot of strange things happening within it. And um, I, you know what, I'm actually going to, I'm going to utilize my phone, which I really try not to do um, within these commentaries or, or in the show. But I think I thought this was so funny when I, when I came across it yesterday. Um, so it was on the, I'll always know what you did last summer. Uh, IMDB page. Um, which you'd think more people would be on, um, but they aren't. Oh no, it's the fisherman! Um, and I think what's important to note in the in-betweening, or the intervening years, rather, um, between the films is that the fisherman has kind of become a, uh, uh, an urban legend, um, and uh, it's, it's like he's this figure who will terrorize teens who do pranks. Uh, so he's kind of like the boogeyman with a very specific M.O. Because uh, he hates fun or dangerous fun. Uh, again, not quite sure how it fully works, but... Um, uh, I, this, this scene, even though we're about to realize it's not quite the fisherman uh, that we think he is in a moment, um, that... Uh, it, it, when you see the fisherman out in the open kind of running around, it's very strange. It's kind of like Freddy Krueger in, um, I believe it's Nightmare on Elm Street 2 when he's at the pool party and he's just like, Robert England's not a big guy. Uh, so you're just watching this little guy kind of like jump around a little bit and it doesn't feel as threatening. Um, this feels like, just run? Certainly you could go faster on a skateboard. Why are you stopping? Why? fell sideways off off parking garage I don't understand how this death happened a really weird prank like a lot of stuff can go wrong I mean I guess people were buying more stuff from eBay in 2005 or 6 Okay, let's talk about this piece of IMDb trivia which um, I don't know if you'll find as funny as I did um there's a lot. Okay, this is one of those IMDb trivia's. Uh, has a lot of kind of repetitive ones. They need to find the right one. Um, okay, actually, it's the first one. Here we go. That's easy. Um, 
So uh, from the IMDb trivia of I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer. Uh, the movie was announced in 2000 and was originally meant to star Jennifer Love Hewitt, Brandy Norwood, and Freddie Prince Jr. again. However, the movie was left alone for a while and the original script, which involved Jennifer, Brandy, and Freddie, was scrapped and a whole new script is written despite the script being scrapped. Uh, Hewitt was rumored to have a cameo appearance in the movie but never made it. So there's a lot of things I find very funny. Okay, also, this young man was impaled impaled like no one thought this would go wrong they thought their friend who was a good skateboarder in a small town could be fine um so these people are idiots and they deserve everything that's coming to them okay but let's break down this imdb trivia um the i love this however the movie was left alone for a while like you like the movie just got like left in a corner and no one hung out with it and no one played it and it became this weird monstrosity that uh we are currently watching um i also enjoy that they mention um jennifer love hewitt brandy norwood and freddie prince jr full names and then when they refer to them again they say jennifer brandy and freddie uh, like we're all buds now um, and uh, script being scrapped that's a great tongue twister should you ever need one script scrapped script being scrapped script scrapped see I did theater school guys I know what I'm doing oh god it's a muted color palette um, and so I think to be totally fair uh to this film the director sylvain white um has gone on to do some really interesting uh tv work um working on some pretty you know prestigious tv shows and uh he was hired very quickly before production was scheduled to start after they fired the original director because reasons uh so prep that would normally you know he'd have a few months for uh he was uh forced to do i think in like two weeks so you know, you know, everything from casting to, you know, building teams and, you know, putting together sets. So, uh, it's, it, there's some weaknesses to it. I'm, I'm willing to forgive them, but, uh, we have this beautifully strange, deeply stupid film, which I think as we all know by now, I love, um, any goofy film that people have invested millions of dollars into, um, or at least hundreds of thousands of dollars into, that is such a mess. I am fascinated by. I am here for it. The thing is, in this film, it's like teens may be fearful of the fishermen, but they never learn the real lesson, which is don't listen to the blonde hothead. If they hadn't listened to Ryan Felipe in the first movie, none of this would have ever happened. But here we are listening to some dumb hothead again, who's all like, I wear a fucking shirt like that. What are those? Polo shirt. I wear a polo shirt. Just pop the collar. Don't burn it. He's burning it. <laughs> So it looks as so that he actually got injured. I mean, I guess when, you know, like, again, as we've talked about, pranks kind of going wrong isn't 
necessarily a new thing in um, horror films and, uh, you know, kind of services, you know, Return of the Repressed and the Revenge and all of these aspects, which feature very heavily into it. However, if you're like me, and I imagine we're all pretty similar for watching, I, I'll always know what we I'll always know what we did last summer together, that we are pretty similar. Um, watching these films growing up, there is such a, a, a really thought growing up I'd have so many more pranks going wrong in my life so many secrets I'd be taking to the grave um and I only have a few of them um but uh, I thought I'd have more but uh films lie that's what I've learned I mean, so the thing is, and what we're going to learn later is, like, a fire is not going to destroy the hook. You're better off, like they did in the first film, throwing it into, um, uh, like an ocean. But that's fine. These characters haven't seen the first film, but they live within its universe. Ooh, I love a Times New Roman, um, font on screen. It's like they did it in, like, Final Cut Pro. And I like um, that they give these characters kind of, they're, they're all known through what they want to do, which, um, again, isn't dissimilar from, you know, other slasher films or certainly this franchise. Again, this is not, you know, a film of great depth, but um, basically our, uh, our final girl here, uh, Amber, um, is kind of deep because she's a photographer. And we're, we're now kind of moving into present day with this film, and uh, it's a year later, and so we all know that's when shit starts. Oh, the flip phone. Um, and this is kind of what really drives me bonkers about the film, is this muted, washed out filter. It, it looks like a shitty Instagram filter, and it really... <laughs> people make it out. Oh, we're dancing! Oh, this party looks like garbage. Oh, there's so many like mid-aughts styles happening. The randomly baggy dresses with tight bits. Um, the tousled hair on the men. Uh, is that band Default? Wasting time. They had that song. Anyway, I feel like every man in this movie is like an alternative member of that band default. Because he's just a simple guy. Just a simple guy who's like just hanging out in this small town forever and it's totally fine.
enough, so I'll be back with Colby. Ugh, he went away to college, but didn't stop buying polo shirts. If there is any more, like, less appealing look to me, like, just individually, I get that other people like it. Um, but I got, like, 92 minutes to fill with you guys, so we're going to talk about these outfits. That kind of pull-neck cargo shorts sandals look is deeply upsetting to me as as a human um I, I don't know anything else that screams douche quite so loudly um the only thing sadder is this like shapeless green sack they've put her in I also, I love how it was like this. We're in taking it to the grave secret, and he's like loudly talking about, you know, that thing that changed everything last summer at a party that is being widely attended by uh, numerous people from the community. Oh, look at his dick hog. America flag. Uh, whoa, edgy cuts. So I think already this film feels so much cheaper and uh, emptier than the first two. Um, and, and I wonder if that was because, you know, I have my own, like, obviously childhood recollections of those films, but there is the kind of brutalist aesthetic that the early 2000s were so keen on delivering. Um, you know, I, I recently rewatched uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2003, uh, which I hadn't seen in a long time, and it really, frankly, did not hold up for me. But it's, it's this, like, muted, pulled back uh, a filmmaking style that is is so worried about p appearing sincere, like as though to appear sincere in any kind of capacity is um, uh, lame or stupid. Um, and so they kind of have these like almost it reverts back to like a music video style, which I was associated as kind of a trend in the eighties, but. And definitely, these films really feel like a reaction to the kind of glossy celebrity of the 90s teen horror films, which are really, really popular. Um, and and so it's trying to get back to, like, something fucking edgelord. And it, it, I don't think they suit this kind of film, um, but it is a really interesting experiment, a uh, really interesting journey to go on. Oh, yeah, that's the kid who died. <laughs> we didn't spend enough time with PJ. This is what I have learned. Um, you know, so here's where I think the film takes an interesting uh, deviation from the original setup. Um, it is that, you know, in the original film, it was an accident. It was truly an accident that happened because some kids were 
partying and it was a mistake even though they were kind of partying responsibly um and then there's this guilt this trauma this ptsd which stems from it and i think that the films do some really interesting stuff (gasps) oh no a note why didn't they text Also, I really enjoy watching uh, teen <laughs> uh, teen bedrooms. Um, there's some Instagram accounts that do that, but uh, some people either kind of, I feel personally nail it, or they're like over-decorated monstrosities like Amber's here. Like, what is she going for? Is there any more shit she could pack into this room? Okay, back to my original point about uh, derivations. So this film, however, is about this group of kids that go out of their way to prank someone and earlier in the film and i was you know talking over it a bit um the the kids are talking about this kind of figure of the fisherman and you know he's out there and he'll like come get you around the fourth of july and all of this stuff um and that's uh again it's interesting that that the kind of figure of ben willis has evolved into this kind of boogeyman-esque figure but uh but we also have this group of kids this these group of characters who have done something harmful almost on purpose um so again it's it's a kind of tricky notion so it's uh you are spreading the urban legend about ben willis you are wanting to kind of perpetuate it a little bit uh by you know having your friend dress up as the fisherman and run after people but in doing so they actually caused real harm and killed their friend so there's a a much different i feel onus on these characters to uh um oh god um what did she have oh it's like a camera stand-up leg oh good it's one of her 17 lamps in a corner um but again, it's it's just an interesting thing that it's gone from this kind of innocent mistake that felt kind of familiar to a lot of people. You know, in the original film, it was, you know, uh, Ryan Felipe, who's drunk, who they didn't let drive. They let the sober guy drive, but he drops his bottle and it causes Freddie Prince Jr. and the accident, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, no. Music. Um, so I feel like the standards within the films are very different. Um, our take on the characters is quite different because um, I, I can see, you know, this group of kids in the original film making the best choices they could and still winding up in an accident and trying to deal with it. However, within this film, you got a, a bunch of kind of jerky teens pulling an elaborate prank with a weapon. Like, it would have been different if they'd gotten the fisherman up there and PJ was on his skateboard and they pulled off his mask and was like hey it's me your butt i got you (laughs) also that text is so superimposed over the image it's great how many messages did you get oh my god you're so popular you know it's crazy i uh i used to have a flip phone and my parents got it for me when i was in high school i think because i was like had after school activities or actually i know it's because i had a few more after school activities and i would go over to friends houses afterwards so it was an easy way for me to be in touch with them um and uh, and I still remember when I got my first text message. I was at a mall. Remember malls? I don't. Uh, and then our other friend here, Zoe. She's like in not a Vanessence. Oh, she almost started singing. It was really exciting. <laughs> 
we murdered her friend technically, but you didn't come to my damn show. Hey, look, another room with like 13 lamps. Again, just like uh, Amber is defined by her camera bringing with her everywhere photography bit, uh, Zoe's main characteristic is being an edgy rock chick. So if you've ever known anyone, especially a woman who's played music, she probably you're probably really like, see you're seeing them, you're seeing those people on screen through representation in this film. And her sweatshirt, her zip-up says shining pink stars. And then there's a sticker on the fridge that said, I will do whatever my Rice Krispies tell me to. Oh, Times New Roman, what's up? <gasps> Again, I feel like some of these shots, they're so um, uh, very indebted to, oh, I guess it is, maybe it's a coastal town. I don't know. I just find it so funny that it went from like, you know, the coast to, hey, look, a ski resort. Also, what are these people wearing? Why is the belt that thick? Why does she have an armband on? Why is Amber's pants like that? I have pajama pants like that. So... To kind of follow along with the other films, this it does follow a very similar structure until the very end. And I'm going to apologize in advance because I am going to spoil the ending if you've not seen this film because there is a kind of twist that I think we need to talk about. But I'm not going to spoil it right now because we are still in the middle of a whodunit. So like in the other films, they are going around. They're like, Anne Hayes, are you here? Let's talk. All right, calm down. This is so stupid. What is this for? We need to talk. So, yeah, everyone's going around. They're checking out with everyone. Who did it? Did you do it? Why'd you do it? I think you did it. Now he's intimidating them with his gondola cleaning machine, which, you know, tells you how stable he is. Oh, it's totally blocked. I mean... And why would they come to you if they told someone? And again, I, I, I was talking over some of the dialogue, but I think it's interesting the way this film also kind of 
deals with characters who want to stay and work within a small town versus people trying to leave. Um, so we heard earlier at the party that um, uh, the guy from Default was saying to Amber, like, you're going to be this big photographer. You're going to make us all look like Hicks. This is how I, like, microaggression flirt with you. Um, I invented nagging, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and he's like, no, I work the grounds. I do this, I do that. And there's a sense that, like, while some of the protagonists within this film might see that as less than the film seems that is quite sees it as quite noble and even with this guy here um who uh who played the fisherman in the prank um he's now fixing uh cleaning gondolas in the off season um, of ski resort and it was like oh god he just does this Um, these people are so stupid, but, um, yeah, they were like, no, he just stays here and works. So you can see that certainly within the film, um, within the original films, there is a sense of characters wanting to break out here. We have Amber, as I was mentioning earlier, doing the photography thing. Zoe is, you know, clearly all about her music and wanting to get out. They're mirroring the kind of Julie Helen relationship, um, in the first film, that you know, these two young women both want to move on and out of this town, um, particularly because the town holds so much trauma and violence for them, um, and now danger with these threats. Why are you making your rounds at the school if it's summer and there are no kids? He seems suspicious. Oh, he's been thinking about you. Yeah, because this is like PJ's dad. Her polo shirt is a lifeguard. I love that they're having this conversation to just kind of rehash all the intentions and character stuff that is going on. I 
What a like they could clearly afford seventeen extras for this film. See, it seems pretty hilly. It's not like an ocean town. It's, yeah, I was right. I was right in my, anyway. Basically, the the series, the it just moved more inland. And it's permanently gray, which I always feel like this kind of filter, as I was talking about earlier, it's just, it's always kind of aping on um, Gore Verbinski's remake of The Ring. It's just like, it's too stylized. It always pulls me out. Kind of works in the ring for me, but anything else, I'm always like, what happened? I just turned my back for a second. It's great, great security that they have um, around, I assume, all this valuable equipment. Actually, whenever, whenever I've watched this film, this, um, these ski gondola moments always make me think of that film, um, Frozen. I think that was Adam Green. Ugh. We have talked about doing that one on the show. And here's like this is an example of a scene that really just kind of kills it for me. That I think you know the previous two entries clearly had more budget, star power, and the actors playing these characters are so central to the popularity. Like Jennifer Love Hewitt was a known entity. Brandy is a known entity, um, particularly during the late '90s, huge. So the film willingly would spend a lot of time on them. Um, whereas now these films are kind of like, you know, cast with people who are okay at best. Um, but they, they have, these scenes have an emptiness to them. It's like, they're not willing to invest a lot of energy into these characters. So they feel kind of rote and kind of bland. Um, and I think these scenes kind of engulf them and they make the narrative and the pace really slow down. Oh my God. <laughs> so she's just going back down in a gondola. What happened in that scene? What?
mean, I don't know if I would let a strange man push me down in a gondola. But again, this is another, like, what's happening in the scene? Like, the film almost comes to a complete stop because her bike broke down and now she's in this. So it's, again, it's something that's supposed to feel like a really exciting set piece. And I think this one in particular, um, this kind of gondola moment, it it feels like it's trying to kind of do a final destination thing. And and those films were still pretty popular into the 2000s. So... um, it, it just is not budget or talent or the people behind it. I think it's that confluence of things. It just doesn't work for me as an engaging moment. Ooh, her camera. Look at the spinny table I have. I had to use it to so I could spin the photos around to you. But yeah, so like that scene happens and then it just ends and now we're here with her talking to these quote unquote friends of hers. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's where like these films really showcase, um, you know, if you liked I think the original films, even if you didn't wear their strengths lie because those films the 90s teen slasher films i argue in my book are really about the characters whether they be victims or survivors or some kind of in between often they are the perpetrators of or have some familial involvement with um the things that would come back to haunt them this film kind of showcases the Like, it, it's that kind of edginess from the 2000s that is crying and pills and crying. But it, it again, it feels like it's done more for shock. It's done more for, I can't stop saying it, like edginess. These films feel very edgelord to me. Um, and that's okay. That's that's okay sometimes. I think when you try to kind of fit them into a franchise, which is, to me, so indebted to the late 90s without kind of taking it somewhere new or evolving it in some way, um, this film actually feels kind of regressive because, again, you have these kids who are just dicks. Um, this guy's just trying to kill himself in peace. Um And it, it feels like they aren't going anywhere with it. It's it's just kind of for these um, uh, moments within the film, these set pieces, these set piece moments, whether it's something on a gondola or the scene that we're watching right now um, that are shocking and bloody and like, what the fuck? Um, but it doesn't feel as narratively important. feels a bit more to me like it's something getting checked off. It's a box getting checked off and it's it's you know, not 
how I would choose my my time. I, I, I enjoy things that are, um, uh, I think, just a bit more pulled together narratively. There's a lot of slack in this film and uh, definitely feels like some stuff is left in just so that they can hit a run time. Mm. Other fun fact that... Um, has nothing to do with this film, but I was rewatching that film, uh, Darkness Falls from 2003, and I put it on the other night. And it was like I checked the runtime, and it was like 80 minutes, 85 minutes. I was like, oh, sweet, nice and short. And it ends like an hour in, and credits start rolling. And I again went to one of my favorite places, IMDb trivia, and uh, it says the Darkness Falls credits has a it has an 11 minute credit sequence at the end to flush out its runtime so it could be released theatrically which i think is just wonderful um as we've all seen if you have seen the film host which is now on a shutter and it's um a film about uh zoom uh hangout with a seance that goes horribly wrong which is really fun it's a really fun effective film um that I'm I'm down for a sixty minute runtime. I I say let's normalize the sixty minute runtime. Fisherman, he was gonna kill himself. So I think where again we can see in this film, as I've just talked over this character's death. <laughs> Um, my, my problem with some of these films and the other films of the kind of 2000s, you know, those first 10 years especially, are that they don't value their characters. They don't, these films don't seem to root for their characters. So in that effect, I think we as an audience have a hard time rooting for them because the film doesn't seem to like them very much. Um, and... I think, if anything, because of the star power in some of those late 90s films, whether you like them or not, um, they are showing that, you know, these characters portrayed by these specific actors are important. Um, so we should care about them, because that's why you bought a ticket. Yes, it's blood. Don't touch it. Yes, put your fingerprints on more things.
Did you notice on um, Beefcake's, Blondie Beefcake's arm, there's a scar on his forearm? Continuity, see? The continuity department in this film was like, I'm going to say, really pulling their weight. Now's the time, kids. Fess up. Call me. Don't touch her. I mean, it's really convenient for Amber that, like, so many guys want to do her. I mean, again, this is probably the film I've seen the least, definitely out of the trilogy, but out of a lot of the kind of 90s teen horror ones. I think I've seen, no, I have seen Bloody Mary, um, Urban Legends Bloody Mary, like, a few more times than this one. I think I, I watched this film twice for the book, and now I'm watching it again. I may have seen it another time. In any event, here we go. Um, so now we're into the point of the film as I remember it like random shit just starts happening um so it's you know ripping up all the uh, photos of um they of Ambers and PJ also clearly they had to clip her scene like on Helen's mirror and they clearly had to uh, clip her uh, shirt together I feel like it's very clear. Like, that's just a weird pin that they have. Oh, it's this guy. I wonder if he's the killer. Like, Will in the last film. Remember? Benson. Benson. My favorite cinematic moment of all time. Don't approach him with the chainsaw. You deserve your death. I've been uh, taking a break from the band Default and uh, staying home, so that's how I heard the news. Yes. 
No one likes toxic masculinity either, but here we are. that's the thing that's stopping you you know what I think it's just a good lesson for everyone like keep your chainsaws handy because then guys like that won't talk to you Again, we're, we're now really hitting another real hard slag in the film, uh, in my opinion. It, it, the action kind of stops again for a bit, and when your film is like 92 minutes, you really need it to clip along. Um, oh, hello. Bra off, or bra on. Oh my god, I do not miss those fucking low-cut jeans. Yeah, another interesting thing that I think you can really feel in this film, or I certainly do, is um, through its lack of budget. Um, again, this was kind of meant to be a, a immediate follow-up to I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. Um, oh, they're trying to note him back. Aggressive. Um, but um, there's... I don't have a sense of this town... Um, and I think, you know, after the second one didn't do as well at the box office and this one was shelved for so long or left alone, as IMDb trivia will tell you, um, it, it just, it, I don't have a sense of the world that these characters live in. And that I generally find is the issue with a smaller budget. Um, if you don't have a lot of resources at you, like you think about the first one and there was a Kroger festival, which involved a lot of, you know, extra heavy scenes Ooh. 
Um, it seems with a lot of extras, a lot of set pieces, a lot of things to kind of inform our understanding of this town uh, or of the town. Ah! Oh my God. And so the film is thereby filled up with, and so this film doesn't have that. It's desperately trying to kind of fill itself up with these moments, for instance, where she's seen, you know, PJ in her dream as the fisherman, and it's all very, like, music video heavy. Um, and I feel like these moments are often used to pad out a runtime, but also meant to kind of give some kind of texture and moment to, uh, to the film, and it doesn't really resonate. But, like, this is kind of a cool scene. Like, the image, you know, waking up surrounded by all of these cuts. You know, into the couch and everything else except on your body. Like, that's, that's freaky. That's definitely someone fucking with you. So I just waited in the dark till I could accost you. Again, why are you swimming in the dark? Like, there's so many moments within this film which feel like extra what the fuck. Like, at least put on some fucking lights. Unless the film could not afford lights. Which is a very real possibility based on all those lamps we were seeing in their bedrooms. They're just using, like, a generator backup for a couple of them. He's literally swimming in a dark pool. No, that's when you get out. Good.
I mean, I like that there were no follow-up questions to how did you get this very specific injury in your foot, sore, sir, or sore? Such a, such a, I think maybe this guy created incels. He was like the first one. No, he wasn't the first one, but, you know, if he lives, if he lived beyond this film, he would have definitely spent a lot of time on like 4chan. I like that the camera was at like the eye level of a cat going through those um, weeds. just you but sure I'm into group stuff <laughs> it's just a just a bunch of cops um, actually we'd really like to talk to you about a cab and how we're going to defund the police say so uh, this film is real late on the death counts and we have about 30-ish minutes to go so here's where it's going to start ramping up any scene now shit's going to get real right Once and for all, chuck it in a damn volcano. 
I guess the Helen Shiver story doesn't translate into an urban legend. Um, <laughs> These characters are all just kind of awful to each other. Oh, this is just embarrassing. I mean, I've never been in a band because I have no musical abilities, but that's actually just painful to watch that. Let's just touch each other as we look through these articles about... The fisherman. He's eye fucking her so hard, and it makes me so uncomfortable. guy is so creepy i actually forgot about how creepy he is like she's saying to him i'm so scared i'm gonna die and he's like let me just put this arm here uh don't do that Hey, look, a scene with people. People smoking. Hot dogs. Guy's little paunch. I would kill for the Kroger beauty pageant right now. This sucks. I'm gonna get another cocktail.
She just wants to be a big old uh, rock star. That's what she wants. Oh, that hair. That hair. There's so many American flags. You know what? I'm going to start a new theory right now. Um, that uh, these characters already died, and this is hell. It's like Gaspar Noe's climax. Now there's a chick there. That's great. I didn't see her earlier. Where is the setup? Oh, I feel bad watching this. She's awesome. No, she's not. I just feel very awkward when I'm watching someone who's supposed to be quote-unquote awesome at something who is clearly not and is not only lip-syncing but seems to have never been on stage before oh my god this needs to be his death scene right she can't even handle a microphone I mean again I've not had any musical experience, but I know flinging a mic around your mouth like this will not result in clean audio. And for anyone who is curious, I am recording on one of our old uh, rock band mics that we used for like the first uh, three years of doing the Faculty of Horror. Uh, now that we're doing some more remote recording, Andrea passed this on to me and it uh, definitely brings back some memories. Fond memories, good memories. Not one of these sad I'm about to die and not be a rock star memories. Oh God, that was so, what was she doing? She was just like gazing at herself, smiling. Where is everyone? guys they seem terrible <laughs> okay so we have 20 minutes in the runtime left I'm gonna spoil some shit and I only say it's a spoiler alert because I actually laughed out loud when the reveal happened in the film and there's actually a lot I want to talk about with this reveal so I'm gonna do it now because when it happens at the end we won't have enough time oh god they need to stop cutting back to those guys okay so, the killer. Is it the sheriff? Is it that police officer guy? Is it one of these singers? Oh, they're singing about hardcore. 
you think any one of them, you would be wrong because the killer is Ben Willis. Yes, the original Fisherman is back. Um, he is a zombified version of himself. He is like a ladder, uh, Jason or Michael returning from beyond the grave or beyond death to uh, fulfill a vengeful kind of modus operandi uh, to torture the teens who would play pranks or, you know, hide misdemeanor felons, you know, just anything like that. Um, basically punish teens. He has kind of taken up that mantle now. So that is now who is attacking them. Um, ah! That's why she's screaming so much because he's undead. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that that twist does. Um, it... It, it, it apes back to kind of the Halloween or the Friday 13th franchise, which always, um, and while I really love those films, it has a really, those franchises have a really complicated relationship with their own mythology in terms of, you know, when were Freddie and Jason, or when were Michael and Jason alive? When uh, did they die? When were they reanimated? Or what stage of reanimation are they? Why are they reanimated? Um in general, for Michael, it's because he's so evil and uh, Jason seems to have something to prove. Um, so that's kind of the story. And I think here we're supposed to imply the similar thing with the fisherman. Um, oh, bye, Zoe. Guess that agent doesn't need your info anymore. Um, but for the film, it kind of lends itself into a new territory. So... Um, from Lois Duncan's original book, which the original films kind of took a fair amount from, they really are indebted to these characters, these characters who are um, faulted, who are confused, who are realizing that life isn't everything they thought it could be, and that in fact there's a lot more complications and issues that happen within it. Um, but then within this world, what we're seeing is something quite strange. This, this kind of rote killer now stalking them. Yes, they feel like the weight of what they've done. But they're also very um, confused by it because in the original two films, they you know, go around and talk to a lot of different characters and you know, we're supposed to guess who is the killer. Um, and then what is the killer's relationship to them and often in doing so um and other people have written about this and i, I quote them in my book um they uh, talk about the kind of need for a killer other writers i'm actually going to find her name because she's really smart um have talked about the so having a killer be a kind of member of the community um illustrating that the secrets are of this town are darker and deeper than we are led to believe or even know. Um, and what happens when we kind of take that away is it becomes, it becomes more of a platitude. Like it's, it's more for uh, retribution against a very specific incident rather than it is a town kind of coming to terms and really reckoning with itself. Um, I would say a really, really interesting example of that, although problematic, 
uh, without giving too, too much away, uh, is the film Cherry Falls. If you haven't seen that, if you're like Andrea and have not seen it, um, then I would recommend checking it out. Okay. So, I'm going to find this person's name because she is very smart. Um, Jessica Balanzatagui. Um, it's a long last name and I'm not doing it justice, but I am going to find, um, which, which chapter it's in. Where is it? Uh, I think it's in the slasher film. Yeah. So uh, Jessica Balanzatigui, um, she wrote about, um, a lot of the stuff I was just talking about in crisis of identification in the supernatural slasher, uh, resurrection of the supernatural slasher villain in, um, a really good book, although it's a very expensive book, uh, from what I recall called, uh, style and form in the Hollywood slasher film. And there's a ton of great articles in that. I got that book to write this 1990s teen horror cycle one, because it has a lot of content that actually, uh, grapples with, um, uh, some of the later entries, you know, kind of post 2000s, late nineties, um, stuff. And when, you know, the few places I could find a bit about this, oh no, he's dead. So as everyone's been running around, uh, and some people finally started dying, um, you know, we've come to learn that Ben Willis, um, or we are about to learn that Ben Willis is behind it as we run out of characters that it could possibly be. Um, you know, but I think when we think, if you've seen Cherry Falls, you probably know what I'm referring to. Even in something like Scream, there's such an interesting example where, where with Billy and Stu, um, when they reveal themselves to be the killer, you're like, what the fuck? And, you know, it's like, oh my God, those guys were doing it. And certainly Stu thinks they're doing it for one reason. Um, and then it's revealed that Billy's mom, who will, of course, play a role in uh, Scream 2, it has a lot to do with why they were targeting Sydney and their friends and why it was all happening. Amber, thank God all these guys want to be with you. Get in the trunk. Oh, in the truck. I said he's, I thought he said trunk. And I was like, God, all cops are bad. It's not him. So yeah, so we're kind of like learning that more people knew stuff than they initially let on and it, they kept it secret because of whatever reason. But what I find kind of interesting, and, and as I was saying, in the lack of tying it back to this small town, having one of these characters, you know, um, come back in some kind of way and, and wreak a retribution or um, change something. That's always the thing is you want something, a relationship you thought you previously understood. There's something we didn't know um, that was plausible and that could happen, you know, like 
Billy's mom um, or um, the uh, relationship between um, Ben Willis and the kids in the original film and you know that he was the dad and the dad was going to kill the, 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 the kid like the boyfriend and then it's all kind of gone horribly wrong and spiraled from beyond our understanding and I think in us kind of trying to guess everything there's a really interesting kind of cat and mouse thing that happens where the film is kind of guiding us through it and yes you might guess who the killer is but you almost certainly won't guess why they were the killer. And that, to me, is the fun part. Here we've got this zombie guy. Oh, he's got red eyes. I forgot about that. And, you know, actually, um, a, a, another film I was mentioning, which is uh, very fun, in my opinion. Ah, um... Uh, Urban Legend Bloody Mary um, has a very similar thing where the first two films were dealing with, you know, flesh and blood killers. And then the film kind of turns all of a sudden very supernatural in the in the third installment. And it has a very weak connection to um, the original kind of sources in the film. Very, again, very similar to this film. Um, I think it's more successful because it's just weirder. It's much weirder. And in this film, it feels like they were kind of trying to ape on a couple things that were done in the first film. Um, some of the narrative, there's, you know, as we've seen, a few callbacks, but um, ultimately it wants to kind of make itself edgy and of the time and isn't really concerned with much else. And again, I would, I would chalk a fair amount of that up to um, lack of prep time. Um, lack of resources, lack of budget. I'm not necessarily blaming the creative team here on this. Um, it's just such a strange example of just not a, not a slasher film, not a horror film, just a film. Like it's, it's, it's a film that's really struggling to um, kind of grasp a center of meaning. And um, I mean, we've got a few minutes to go guys. And I like what she just ran into shit. I mean, I know it's setting up the chains for later, but uh, like, <laughs> she just ran into them. And it was like, oh no, chains. <laughs> Which is something I would do, but I'm not being chased in a film. You don't need to. Yeah. Are you? No, the other way. So, in being supernatural, we've learned that he can pretty much do anything. I mean, and all of these, like, the cuts, the stylization of it are just, they really date this film. Like, they really, really date it. Uh, and oftentimes, when you see a lot of cuts like that, they are sometimes just pure stylistic choices that team thinks is, you know, it's really cool, let's do that. Oftentimes, I've certainly found in research and, you know, 
talking to filmmakers that they are to cover up uh, a lack of something. So it's a lot of quick cuts and a lot of stuff to kind of distract from all the stuff you didn't see. Cutting to some random crap. Oh no. Now he's walk he's doing like a silly walk towards them. How is default gonna find another replacement bassist? default a Canadian band? They might have been. So for any U.S. listeners, um, you'll probably... Shall I use my phone to truly understand this? Um, Wasting My Time, I think, was their big song. It was! (laughs) Okay, yes, and they are Canadian. Thanks, Google. Um, Wasting My Time, song recorded by Canadian rock band Default for their 2001 debut studio album, The Fallout. So yeah, they, they, it's plausible from the almost nothing I know of default um, offhand that they could have been touring. This guy could have absolutely been their replacement bassist. Oh no! <laughs> what is this? Like, it's it's just this feels like so in the zombification of Ben Willis which would be a great title for a very in-depth book about this franchise. Um, They don't know what to do with him, so they just kind of, like, give him some crazy monster noises and make him jump around everywhere, and then, oh, shit, he can appear everywhere um, without... (laughs) It turns into, like, goo at the end. I don't know. Um, Again, there's no sense that it actually had a place and meaning beyond what a shocking twist this would be. Um, And that's where I get a bit of a, like, I get a a bug in my britches, let's say, um, because it doesn't really mean anything in the end. Um, You know, like, this town has been decimated once again by a series of deaths and no one is taking accountability, but don't worry because the supernatural entity, um, did it, but don't worry. We turned him into a gooey mess. So there's no body. Just some crazy guy. Don't bother looking into it. Yes, I'm just going to take your word, little white girl. Yeah, you got to move that cuff, buddy. They got to get an IV in. (gasps) Sunshine. Oh, no, the Times New Roman is back. I like the period. One year later, period.
Uh, it feels like a very Britney top. Like, not like a, not like music video, but like a red carpet. Like, I, oh, oh, why are those jeans cropped to that length? Oh, so yeah, her license plate was Colorado. I will. Okay. So, yeah. I like her weird little, like, phone mic that she's clipped to her. It kind of distracts from the uh, neck piece a little bit. <gasps> I saw red eyes again. But again, why did he come back? Why did any of that happen? Um... Yeah, I think the nicest thing... Oh, God, let's say something nice about this one. Um, it killed the franchise. Um, from what I understand, Jennifer Love Hewitt was busy uh, with... I believe it was Ghost Whisperer at the time, so she couldn't do a cameo, though they did have one planned. And um, good for Jennifer Love Hewitt, bad for us, um, because I, I would love a Julie James cameo. I would still love a sequel with... Uh, Jennifer and Freddie and Brandy, as IMDb trivia can call them. Um, I, I'd fucking watch the shit out of that. I would pay 30 bucks to rent that. Um, that's where I am. That's where I am in my life. Um, thank you so much if you've gotten this far. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. This is such a weird movie. Um, so I think we found some stuff to talk about it, uh, to talk about. And, um, I did not think I'd be talking about the band Default this much today, but I like that this is where we can go with these. Um, so this is wrapping up our summer of, um, I know, I still know, and I'll always know. Um, I hope you guys had fun. Um, you know, this is part of the faculty horror mandate of, you know, during a pandemic, it is scary, it is weird out there. So stay home and watch a movie if you can. Um, Again, we hope uh, you're taking care of yourself. We hope um, everything is okay. Um, and if it's not, you fared a whole lot better than the idiots in this film. So thank you so much um, for tuning in. Um, you guys, you guys rock. Um, and until next time, office hours are closed.